welcome back to another episode of the Core Consult RX Podcast. Cole, what's going on, man? Not too much. Hanging in there. How about you? Uh, you know, living that Christmas dream. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, actually, actually, I feel like patients uh, have not been as likely to show up, and so my days have been a little lighter, so yeah, That's nice. can't complain. Yeah, you know, I, I seem to remember when I worked in the community, uh, holidays were always tough because we were going to be closed, so everybody's getting all their stuff filled, you know, early and things like that. Um, but in my current position and, and previously, it's it, it has been a little calmer because when it's when you interact with outpatient clinics, there's just a lot of vacation time around then, so it's just not a whole lot, you know, going on. It's kind of pleasant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, I agree. Which I guess the, is this uh, our official Christmas episode? Because won't this release on Christmas Day? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. That's true. It yeah. will. Well, look at there. Merry Christmas. We're doing a Christmas <laughs> episode this year. Yeah. Oh, man. I, I bet so many people are going to take full advantage of this episode of Christmas Day. <laughs> I can't say that I can... F- okay. I, maybe I can figure it out as we go, but I'm not sure I can connect this topic to Christmas or the holidays. No, it has nothing to do with anyway. Christmas. They just love our podcast so much yeah. they want to listen. Yeah. That's that's the point, Cole. Maybe we'll play some jingle bells as the outro. <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. So uh, today we um, are doing our second episode of, of kind of being in two different locations recording. So again, if there's any audio issues, I think we're better this time, but again, we, we never fully know until we're, we're done. So um, bear with us this episode if there's some weird audio issues, but uh, we're doing another accredited episode. And so we are going to be covering atrial fibrillation, which is a topic we've done a couple times. We did some overviews and whatnot um, and have talked about it in like patient cases. But uh, in this case, there's a new updated guideline um, that was just released uh, to kind of close out 2023. And so we figured this is a good time to kind of go back through it as a review and talk about some of the updates. Yeah, and there's really some distinct updates around how you think about AFib uh, as a whole and as a disease state that I think are very interesting. So, yeah, for sure some updates to to some of the guidance. Yeah, so in this, like I said, it's an accredited episode, so you guys probably know the drill by now, but for those of you who are free CE members, make sure that after you listen, um, you go to the website uh, and you will be asked to put in a password um, to access the post-activity test for this episode. We'll give you that password at some point during the episode, and once you're done listening, go there, take the uh, post-activity test, get your one hour of continuing education credit for pharmacists and nurses and if you're not a member, freece.com, check them out. They have all kinds of wonderful learning opportunities for you. So they've been partnering with us for quite a while. So you got all kinds of different accredited episodes from us and then lots of other good stuff on their website besides just the podcast. So um, definitely worth the, uh, the price of an annual membership to get access to all of their library. Thanks to them, as usual, for partnering with us again. And without further ado, Cole, anything in particular you want to start off with? Well, I mean, you know, there's a lot of AFib guidelines that you can go out and find from various groups in various countries. And this is this is a big one in America. I guess this is the American Heart Association and American College of Cardiology. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So um, this is their updated guideline. Just came out at the end of November, so about a month ago. Um, and just some highlights of some of the updates that we'll talk through. First, we'll talk through some of the way that they're classifying it now, a lot of terminology that's changed and 
really a different way of thinking about AFib in general as kind of a longitudinal disease state as opposed to something that just happens and then needs to be managed, um, uh, kind of looking at the early stages pre-AFib and then even kind of um, if you're in kind of the later permanent AFib kind of deal. So we'll talk through that. Uh, they talk a lot more about um, lifestyle management since there is a, more of a focus on the prevention of AFib, whereas I don't know that there was as much of a focus in previous guidelines on that. Uh, we're, you're probably familiar with, and we've talked before about the CHADS-VAS score for um, evaluating um, stroke risk and need for anticoagulation. They talk about a couple of other um, tools that can be used to evaluate it as well, apart from just that. Um, they also highlight the um, assessment of bleed risk and not using that in a vacuum to decide whether you should anticoagulate or not, um, along with a number of other things, including um, procedures being first line in some cases, device detected, AFib, um, and stuff like that. So a whole number of things that they've they've kind of readdressed and, and added to. Yeah, absolutely. And and then so they included the very beginning kind of a, a long list of definitions. Um, and Cole had mentioned a couple of them earlier, but we'll we'll talk about when we go through like the pre uh, pre AFib categories, and we can kind of go through those a little bit later as far as the individual. Um, classifications now that they've they've included in the guidelines but um we've we've talked in the past about the various types of uh, or subtypes i guess you could say of, of afib so for example like proxismal afib um would be the um intermittent basically the the afib comes on but then usually will kind of spontaneously convert back to normal sinus rhythm um it's you know very brief episodes and, and specifically the afib has been going on for no more than seven days which a lot of people have very you know, significantly shorter episodes than that. Um, if it's considered to be persistent AFib, then that would be a patient who's had the continuous, you know, the, the being, being in continuous rhythm of AFib for more than seven days, and they've actually required intervention um, in order to kind of go back to normal sinus rhythm. And then long-standing persistent is greater than twelve months. Permanent AFib is basically where you've made the clinical you know, decision along with the patient to stop making further attempts at restoring normal sinus rhythm or, or maintaining normal sinus rhythm. So it's obviously that's what we're trying to prevent from getting to that extreme, but um, that, that's how it's kind of subcategorized. And I guess we, we really haven't even, I guess, talked about you know, why we worry about AFib in the first place. So Cole, you want to kind of just give like what AFib is? We, I guess we should start with some basic definition stuff instead of just jumping right into the subtypes. <laughs> Good point. Um, but isn't that just classic us just to jump yeah. right in instead of setting some you know. of the, the basics up? Um, so you, it's, you know how the definitions are always at the beginning of the chapter? That's how I feel. That's like, that's <laughs> our who new re who reads episode layout. You don't read that part. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so AFib is a very common arrhythmia, pretty sure the most common arrhythmia um, amongst uh, U.S. adults at least, and it's a supraventricular tachyarrhythmia with uncoordinated atrial activity and ineffective atrial contraction. Um, their heart rate is going to um, spike in many instances well over 300 beats per minute um, depending on the situation, uh, and the concern overall is that um, as you get inadequate um, pumping of the blood, some of it pools in the atrium, and it can coagulate and cause a clot. So um, what we have to consider when somebody has AFib is do we need to, what, what is their risk for stroke um, on top of AFib? 
and do we need to add an anticoagulant on board to reduce their stroke risk? And you have to weigh that against their bleed risk, and there's some tools we can use to evaluate um, how high their risk for a bleed is. And that's kind of it in a nutshell. And as far as, you know, the patients who actually go on to develop AFib, you know, there are several risk factors because there's, there's not a, a completely like agreed, agreed upon, you know, preventative strategy necessarily other than, you know, t- taking precautions for, you know, limiting the risks associated with AFib. So for example, hypertension, which you know, obviously can lead to other problems, including valve disease, um, that RAS activation eventually can lead to the atrial hypertrophy, cardiomyopathy, and, you know, eventually that slowing of the atrial conduction, like you were saying, Cole, and you know, can lead to AFib, coronary artery disease, and that, that, you know, ischemia, hypoxia leads to inflammation that can also end up resulting in AFib, um, alcohol, uh, abuse, obesity, um, any kind of like metabolic uh, dysfunction that leads to oxidative stress, um, again, kind of can navigate itself towards that um, increasing that risk of AFib, autonomic dysfunction, uh, which can oftentimes be associated with different types of like sleep disordered um, breathing. So obstructive sleep apnea that's been untreated situations like that can lead to, um, you know, un, un worsening AFib or, or um, resulting in the patient having an episode of AFib for the first time even. So lots of different factors. There's obviously a genetic component. So lots of different factors to think about, but um, obviously wanting to keep the patient overall metabolic health, you know, you know in check, their hypertension in check, and um, limit the, the risk of AFib as best we can. Yeah, and they really highlight the importance of some specific lifestyle interventions like 10% weight loss to reduce the AFib symptoms and burden and recurrence, but also to prevent. They, they highlight a number of studies for each of these items, but they mention that with every five unit increase in BMI, there's an associated 10 to 13 greater risk of um, AFib recurrence after a uh, post-ablation or, or if they're post-operation. So it makes a big difference. They mentioned smoking cessation. They also reference caffeine. And when they reference caffeine, yeah. they actually say that um, it doesn't appear that caffeine is really a, a problem. Um, the studies don't really support the fact that caffeine's a problem. They do mention that a lot of patients cite caffeine as a trigger for them. And so they say, even though data is not sufficient to say that it might be a true trigger, if a patient cites it as a trigger, still tell them to avoid caffeine so they can they can try to decrease their AFib burden. Yeah, and well, I like the wording that they use for the caffeine too, because it literally says for patients with AFib, recommending caffeine ab- absentation is um, no benefit. Basically, yeah. if you're using, if you're avoiding caffeine just for the sole purpose of preventing an AFib episode, it says there's no benefit. Because when, when I first saw no benefit, my, my thought was, oh, does that mean that it basically like you're, you're asking like, would caffeine help the, and right. so they're saying, no, stay away from it. But no, they're literally, literally saying you don't have to tell people to yeah. stay away from it. So you and can I still feel drink like your that, coffee. Yeah. I feel like there's going to be a lot of patients that are quite excited about that. <laughs> you know, have I told you about a big development in my life? You're a coffee drinker now? I picked up coffee. He picked it up. How'd that happen? I don't. I, we, I listen. This is how it happened. We were just Would at the be, beach. We, yeah. We're okay. At, go we're, ahead. I'm listening. We're at, we're at the beach, and uh, I don't know. It's getting kind of snoozy around 5 p.m., and everybody's just getting a, a, cu- a cup of coffee. And I'm like, you know, maybe I should try this. I want to enjoy my vacation and not be like tired the whole entire time. So I just drank some coffee, and I got a boost. And so I was like, maybe I should do this in the morning. 
it like Man. wires me so much. I, I can get so much done. I'm like, is this how normal people function with coffee? They can be this productive. And yeah, so now I drink coffee. So, so wait a minute, you, you, this, this whole time I've known you, you have not been having like any sort of caffeine in the morning. Uh, the only caffeine I had was like, um, you know, the little like Mio, um, uh, yeah. flavor supplements. Like so they six, make one six milligrams of caffeine. Yeah. They make one with caffeine, you know, it's just a little bit. And so that, that I would drink that in the morning. Um, so no, I've never oh. like in my life on a daily basis had like a caffeine, you know, spike or whatever. And it's amazing. I, I, I can get so many yeah. things done. I don't know how I made yeah. it through pharmacy school in this much of life without doing that. I, I'm I, I don't I'm kind of speechless myself right now. I, well, I, I mean I know you're you I are think, a caffeine drinker, but I know you're not a, really a coffee drinker either, right? No, yeah, no, not really. But I definitely have caffeine every morning in some way, shape, or form. It, right. it's, so I can't imagine drinking caffeine and feeling like energized by. It, I guess yeah. that's what I'm getting at. That's I usually mean. drink it just to kind of sort of feel normal and not get a splitting headache. Yeah, I suppose but that that could indicate be a problem. I don't know. It's hard to say. That'll definitely be me pretty soon, but uh, that that is to say that, that that not only do they say that abstinence from caffeine is not helpful, um, but it's really a, it's of no change if you drink caffeine. And some studies might suggest that it lowers your risk for AFib. So interesting. Yeah, I, I was gonna say I feel like the caffeine has had some some wins lately for a few different studies. It has. It really has. Uh, finally, finally, some good news about caffeine. <laughs> I know the so, trouble is, I, you know, I put a lot of creamer in there, which uh, probably negates any benefit. The extra calories negates any benefit that I get from the caffeine. So that's all right. We'll get you some Ozempic if you start putting on those calories. <laughs> appreciate, appreciate that. I'll have you. <laughs> yeah, no problem. For me. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, no problem. So, so yeah. if a patient is is developing AFib and you know presenting with new onset or, or maybe they've experienced it before, but they've gone back into AFib from a clinical presentation, patients will oftentimes kind of refer to the the symptoms as like a palp feeling, like palpitations. There's not usually um, there there can be some chest pain, but it's it's not usually as severe as you know like a I shouldn't say usually a lot of patients it's not as severe as as something like an MI or anything like that um, patients are often really lightheaded um, you know near syncopal episode maybe feeling short of breath and you know also depending on what they were doing you know if the patient was was exercising you know really intensely Maybe they haven't been doing that in a while. That kind of fits the description with their, based on their symptoms, you would automatically kind of be thinking along the lines of AFib. But the palpitations and all that, you're right away going to want to get the patient an EKG. Um, and, and you would most likely want to check their cardiac enzymes, their their thyroid levels. Um, you know, it's if you can, um, getting an echo uh, would be ideal as well. Make sure that there's not any kind of issues going on from a, ventricular hypertrophy or, or if the ejection fraction is reduced and we don't realize the patient's having some kind of an acute heart failure episode. So um, lots of things involved with the workup and, you know, we're trying to rule out issues with, you know, hyperthyroidism that could be kind of resulting in the same symptoms. Um, acute MI, obviously, if there if there's symptoms of that, um, if the patient is having any sort of uh, signs of alcohol intoxication, obviously that would be, need to be ruled out. A pulmonary embolism, um, verifying they haven't had any kind of recent cardiac surgery recently, you know, things like that, and uh, making sure that we're working the patient up to figure out even you know, and if it is AFib, you know, it can be pretty easily diagnosed at that point. Yeah. Um, and as we're thinking about what we want to do about the AFib, 
um, there's kind of a, a number of factors. One is to um, potentially get the patient back into a normal sinus rhythm. Um, one is to try to control the heart rate um, down to a uh, point that's been shown to be safe um, or kind of a combination of the two. So um, one to consider is ventricular rate control. Patients with a rapid ventricular response usually need control of their rate to improve symptoms, decrease their AFib burden. Um, it can be achieved in the acute setting by um, IV administration of beta blockers or oral administration of beta blockers like esmolol and metoprolol um, or um, non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blockers like diltiazem, even digoxin. Um, the target rate is between 80 and 100 beats per minute. Um, and after rate control, many patients will spontaneously revert back to a normal sinus rhythm. Um, it's most likely to occur in patients with a duration of AFib that's been less than 48 hours. Um, patients who kind of have more mild symptoms, like a history of short or self-limiting episodes, are more likely to spontaneously convert when you get their rate under control. Now, if they don't spontaneously convert just from getting their rate under control, we may end up having to cardiovert them either with pharmacology or direct electrical cardioversion, which is oftentimes um, done as well. And if, that, if that's the case, it, it, that's still a fairly routine you know, procedure, but we would want to make sure the patient's oxygen saturation, electrolytes, you know, particularly their serum potassium, um, are as close to normal as possible. Uh, we would want to assess if they need anticoagulation, um, you know, and that can be based on when their symptom onset. We'll talk about that here in just a second. But when their symptoms, depending on when their symptoms started and, you know, to the time they got to you, um, that can depend on whether or not they're going to need anticoagulation before being cardioverted or not. And then, um, you know, making sure that the patient's blood pressure, all that stuff's obviously being monitored. And then the good thing is, the cardioversion sounds kind of an intense, like an intense procedure, but it's it's rarely associated with complications. It does um, potentially increase the rate uh, or risk rather of of uh, a stroke um, after the fact, but that's higher risk in patients who've had the symptoms going on for longer, which is why the anticoagulation becomes um, a concern whether or not you need to anticoagulate beforehand or not. But again, um, a lot of times the giving like the, the beta blocker or the calcium channel blocker will slow the heart rate enough to where you, the patient will spontaneously convert and you won't have to, you know, go to the electrical cardioversion route. Uh, if the patient does come in and let's say that they're hemodynamically unstable though, that's more of an emergency situation and we may still give them an IV, but we're going to probably push them to getting cardioverted as quick as possible and not, you know, sitting around waiting to see if they're going to spontaneously convert. Um, I, obviously, the, like Cole was saying, the, if it's a patient's first episode, they're more likely to you know, benefit from the, the cardioversion. Um, if they're having symptomatic, you know, persistent AFib, um, it may be appropriate to, to restore, you know, in order to restore their normal sinus rhythm, basically trying uh, the, the, the cardioversion one more time to see if hopefully not classify them as permanent. Um, but Again, it, oftentimes, if, if we can wait on the cardioversion, great. But if not, then, you know, we may end up needing to go forward with it right away to, to protect the patient if they're hemodynamically unstable. Right. 
Um, there are some instances where um, you have a low likelihood of success with a cardioversion uh, where you may not want to try it. Uh, for instance, if the AFib has been continuously present for more than a year, uh, if they notice that the left atrium is markedly enlarged, there might be low likelihood for success. Uh, a patient who had AFib recurrence while taking um, therapeutic doses of antiarrhythmic drugs that, or if they've recently undergone cardioversion, um, or patients who have failed more than one antiarrhythmic drug, um, and then cardioversion with long-term maintenance of sinus rhythm is likely to be unsuccessful if the um, underlying issue is not corrected, like a pericarditis, a pneumonia, mitral valve disease, that sort of thing. Yeah, and the the other thing to consider too is, but even if we're not going to directly like cardiovert, they'll say they're hemodynamically stable. Um, even if we don't need to cardiovert them, the other thing we do want to assess for is: is there a chance they could be having any kind of acute decompensated heart failure episode? Because that will alter how we treat the patient, you know, even to control their their RVR, their rapid ventricular response. So in, in the, if the patient was found to be having, you know, an episode of decompensated heart failure, instead of using beta blockers, digoxin, um, diltiazem, and all those, you know, things, we would switch to IV amiodarone. And um, the the big one that we, we would want to stay away from is the verapamil and diltiazem because that would actually worsen um, the situation on the heart failure side. So that's the one area that you may end up having to switch from your routine meds and go to something like IV amiodarone um, would be if they're also having an episode of acute uh, decompensated heart failure. Right. Um, and ideally, before you um, cardiovert someone, um, they have had adequate anticoagulation because there's a risk that you kind of throw a clot when you are... De depending when, on the time frame. Depending on the time frame, right. Um, so... The timing of it beforehand, so if they're hemodynamically unstable, they might need to be cardioverted urgently and without time to institute optimal oral anticoagulation. Um, those who are candidates for anticoagulation should receive IV heparin or low molecular weight heparin and start that as soon as possible before the cardioversion. Um, if they've had AFib longer than 48 hours or if you don't know how long it's been, um, then uh, or, or or of unknown duration should be therapeutically anticoagulated for at least three weeks, or receive short-term anticoagulation followed by a, a um, an echo to exclude a thrombus before they get cardioverted. Yeah, and that's that's where that risk, you know, the the higher risk after being cardioverted really goes up is after that forty-eight hour window when they've been in AFib for that whole time. That's if you do cardiovert them right away, then they've, they've, there's been enough time for that blood to pool and, and that left atrial appendage and, and form that clot. So that's where, in that point, you really want to make sure that the patient is on anticoagulation before you cardiovert them. Hopefully, the you know if you do lower the rate a little bit, um, even while you're getting them anticoagulated, maybe they'll spontaneously convert and you won't have to do the cardioversion. But it uh, kind of depends on how it plays out. Right. Right. So I guess as far as the, the chronic treatment now, because, you know, we take care of the patient in the hospital. Once they leave, you know, th we want to make sure they don't end up right back in the hospital with another episode. And so there's a few different strategies for chronic management. Right. Um, do you, so do you have anybody in particular you want to start just kind of give an overview? 
Yeah, so I mean, just I kind of mentioned a little bit of it before, uh, but um, rate and rhythm are the two options, decreasing or lowering the rate um, or focusing on maintaining a normal sinus rhythm. And there's different drugs that you would use for that. So we'll go into detail on them, but for rate control, like beta blockers, calcium channel blockers, digoxin, rhythm control, you'd use antirhythmic drugs like class one um, antirhythmic agents, also class three antirhythmic agents like amiodarone, sodalol, and defetilide. Yeah, and we'll go through all these different you know agents. Uh, the, the ones that are most commonly used, we'll say. We will definitely won't go through every antirhythmic, but yeah. We'll, we'll start off with the rate control drugs because that's more often, I feel like, what you're going to run into. And beta blockers, you know, are, are very commonly used in this scenario. Uh, we have, obviously, our cardioselective uh, beta blockers, you know, our uh, basoprolol, metoprolols, um, our non-selective, like our propranolol, which aren't, you know, as often used in this scenario. And then, again, we have our mixed alpha beta blockers, like our carvedilol. Um, and then there's even, like, nabivolol, which is a cardioselective beta blocker, but also has like vasodilatory properties. So you get better blood pressure lowering than a standard beta blocker. So th that's kind of the way I would, would look at it. If you have a patient who has AFib and needs to be on rate control, so let's say you're thinking about a beta blocker, but their blood pressure is really well controlled or you're worried about causing, you know, orthostasis or anything or something like that, then, you know, maybe a beta blocker that's more cardioselective, like bisoprolol, metoprolol, that would probably be a better option if the blood pressure is elevated and you need the beta blocker to, you know, kind of be more effective at bringing the blood pressure down a little bit. That's where your alpha beta blockers are going to be better, like your carvedilol or your nabivolol, your bistolic. Right, right. And of course, we're familiar with these, but they're going to slow the heart rate um, by blocking beta receptors, and they can also decrease contractility. But there's concerns to be aware of. Um, you want to use caution in patients with COPD. Um, or with diabetes, it can mask hypoglycemia and mask the signs and symptoms of, of hypoglycemia. Uh, it has adverse effects like bradycardia, dizziness, um, cold extremity, so you don't want to use caution in patients with Raynaud syndrome. Also can cause fatigue and kind of exercise intolerance. Um, and it's not something that you want to stop abruptly, so make sure you titrate them off slowly if you need to switch. Yeah, absolutely. And the other very commonly used option, diltiazem. Uh, there's also verapamil. Diltiazem is usually a little bit better tolerated, but uh, also can help with hypertension, but de definitely used more so in this scenario to help slow the heart rate. Um, it is still something that obviously can cause hypotension, so we do get a mantra for that. Sinus bradycardia can occur. Um, it, it higher doses, they, there can be. The patient may be at risk for cardiac conduction abnormalities. Um, it can affect appetite, especially verapamil, uh, nausea, some of the constipation. Again, especially verapamil can be a lot more severe. Um, it, peripheral edema potentially can can occur as well. And you know the non dihydros specifically are what we're using the verapamil diltiazem. The other calcium channels, the dihydros, the amlodipines, and all that, not going to be effective here, obviously, because it's not slowing the heart rate like the non dihydros are. Yeah. Um, there's also digoxin, like I mentioned. You're not going to see this one as much anymore because um, it's it's got a, a fair amount of toxicity associated with it, and it's a neurotherapeutic drug. But nausea, vomiting, loss of appetite, bradycardia are, can be signs of uh, toxicity. Um, 
Also, if you have low potassium or magnesium, it can increase the chances for toxicity. So you need to monitor EKG, heart rate, blood pressure, electrolytes, renal function, and you need to draw digoxin levels to make sure that it's in the therapeutic range. Um, and it also has drug interactions with some other medications that may or may not be uh, on board or could pop up, amiodarone, verapamil, clarithromycin, itraconazole as well. Yeah, definitely not uh, not a drug that <clears throat> I can say um, I have much experience with. No. Um, the other thing that the guidelines, we've kind of already hinted at this, but the other thing that the guidelines harp on quite a bit is the concomitant heart failure along with AFib. And so when they talk about long-term rate control for the AFib, they do call into question, is, is there um, an issue with the patient's ejection fraction? So if the left ventricular ejection fraction is 40% or less, obviously in that case, just like we would normally treat a patient with reduced ejection fraction heart failure, we would give them a beta blocker. We would not give a diltiazem or verapamil because you know, we can cause harm in that patient population. So beta blocker would be first line. Digoxin would be a potential second line, but the beta blockers are the ones that are, you know, have the mortality benefit. You just want to, want to make sure it's one of the heart failure specific, you know, gu uh, guideline directed uh, beta blockers. So the bisoprolol, carvedilol, or metoprolol succinate. Right. Uh, that being said, if, if it's 40% or higher the, with the ejection fraction, um, beta blockers or calcium channel blockers are okay to jox in second line. One thing they do make a mention, though, in, this, in the chart that's referring to um, heart failure and the, the, the rate control options, um, they do mention that in the case of per, if the patient has permanent AFib, even if the ejection fraction is okay, um, they do not want the patient to have dronetarone. We know dronetarone is very harmful in like reduced ejection fraction heart failure, but yep. there are cases where dronetarone has been used um, for rate control purposes in some early studies. But the follow-up to that, when they looked at the patients that had permanent AFib, they ended up making it uh, worse and increased hospitalization risk and all that. So dronetarone, especially in the setting of permanent AFib, should never be used um, like for rate control. Right. Um, and in terms of how low we need to push the rate. Um, there's a good trial to point to because uh, I think kind of back in the day they would be pretty strict with the rate control and shoot for a goal of less than 80 beats per minute. Um, so there was a study called the RACE2 trial that compared strict rate control of less than 80 beats per minute to lenient rate control, which was just less than 110 beats per minute. Um, and they basically showed that their non-inferior lenient control was as effective as strict control um, so, you know, obviously if you're pushing the heart rate lower, you're possibly having to use higher doses or additional medications and the increased risk for toxicity and side effects. So lenient rate control is a reasonable way to go at the beginning. And if they're still having symptoms, um, with it being in kind of a lenient range, you may need to push it lower to less than 80 beats per minute. Yeah. I think that, uh, a lot of patients are very thankful that that, goal has been uh, a little bit more lenient as of the last several years because getting your heart rate below 80 for some people can be, you know, it, it, hard with, with this potential side effects and things that occur with beta blockers and whatnot. Do you have so, a pretty low resting heart rate? No, not, not, not like my wife. Like she, yeah. hers is like 40, but um, <laughs> yeah, her, hers is, hers is like, she's like a sprinting, like That's a like sprinter's heart. heart. It's crazy. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, but uh, no, I mean, mine's probably, I would guess, seventies or yeah. so. It's not nothing, nothing athletic anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much me too. 
It is what it is, though. I know. It just that's what that's what pictures and Facebook's for. <laughs> just, oh, remember remember when I used to be young and in shape. It <laughs> Facebook likes to mock you because it's like, hey, here's a memory from seven years ago when you were young and good yeah. looking, and uh, you yeah, know, look at you en- now, engaged and <laughs> yeah. Here we are now. Yeah. <laughs> it, it is what it is. <laughs> what are you gonna do? Letting Rocking the dad go. bod. Yeah. But uh, uh, before we jump into the rhythm control options, let's uh, we'll give the password real quick. Great um, idea. So today's password, we're gonna it's gonna be AFib. So A F I B twenty three. Nice. Uh, AFib is all capital twenty three. And uh, I think next next year we're gonna have to get a little bit more creative with the uh, the passwords because I'm pretty sure people are gonna start catching on to these. Yeah. Just guessing. Be our, able to just <laughs> hacking our passwords. They're gonna be able to guess. Yeah. Yeah, we have to we have to switch it up on y'all. But all right, rhythm control. Cole, you want to just run through the the Vaughn Williams classification? Yeah. Just real so quick. so Vaughn Williams classifications of the um of the antiarrhythmic drugs. I kind of referenced a couple of them, but um kind of goes one through three with some tub, subtypes. So there's one A, which are sodium and potassium channel blockers. I'm kind of considered in the intermediate range. Quinidine, procainamide disopyramide also class 1b which are just sodium channel blockers that kind of have a fast on with and fast off effect lidocaine mexilatine i saw someone on mexilatine the other day by the way i had never seen that before um, did you yeah maybe it was like a inpatient order I, I didn't really pay attention but i did i didn't note that i had never seen that in real life before um class 1c are also sodium channel blockers uh, these have more of a slow on and slow off effect Fleconide and propafenone. I feel like I see these more often um, than the others in kind of a chronic outpatient management situation. Mm-hmm. Um, Esmolol is a beta blocker, but it's considered a class two antiarrhythmic. Um, and then class three are potassium channel blockers like amiodarone, defetilide, dronetarone, ibutilide, and also sodalol as well as a class three antiarrhythmic. Which that one's also technically a beta blocker, yes. but has yeah. more effect on potassium channels than a standard beta blocker would. So they right. they also refer to it as a class three agent. Right. So we'll kind of touch on some of these, and I think Cole nailed it with some of the, the ones that are more commonly seen. And even these, I feel like, are not all, I mean, compared to like how many patients are on beta blockers, I feel like even something like flicanide, you'll see it, but it's nowhere near as common. Right. Um, Flecainide is is definitely a, a drug that's been around for quite a while. Um, there is a strategy that you'll see some people still utilize. In fact, I have one patient that I see for chronic care management that has this uh, that still uses this strategy, and it's they call it the pill in a pocket approach. Basically, it is flecainide being given as needed, um, and so when the patient is you know not in the hospital setting, but they they have an episode of heart failure, they have flecainide available to where they can take it, and um, they may also be given a beta blocker or diltiazem as well if their heart rate is is rapid you know rapidly increasing or, or already increased, and um, you know they can kind of take that and then on their they can get on their way to the emergency department and hopefully by slowing the heart rate or in using the flecainide that they're they're heart rhythm will spontaneously convert back to normal sinus rhythm. And, uh, you know, if that's the case, you know, you want to make sure that the patient is, is able to kind of handle their own PRN medication administration. And obviously the, the, the patient that I'm referring to that I saw this being utilized with was a um, retired healthcare professional. And so it's a lot easier to kind of get them on board with 
um, you know, utilizing this in the emergency type situation, not a true emergency, but you know what I mean. Um, something where the patient's uncomfortable and, and wants to, wants to fix the situation, if, especially if it's a proxismal AFib, but they're not, you know, used to that, that rhythm. But uh, Flick and I definitely, um, every once in a while you'll see it out there, you know, utilized as uh, maintenance, just a daily maintenance medication as well. That is also um, a potential use for it. It does um, have a contraindication associated with uh, patients who have heart failure. Um, if they have had a recent MI, if they have um, heart block, unless they're using a pace, pacemaker, um, you'd still you'd want to use stay away from Flick and I in those cases. Um, other adverse effects, the, the dizziness, um, dyspnea can happen, visual disturbances for some patients, and we want to make sure that we're monitoring electrolytes, drug-drug interactions, and all that good stuff that we would typically do with any antiarrhythmic. Yeah. Uh, then propafenone, we mentioned as well. Um, probably see this a little less than flecainide. Uh, it can also be used for pharmacologic cardioversion, similar to flecainide. Um, it's significantly more effective in paroxysmal AFib as opposed to persistent AFib, and it's not recommended in patients with structural heart disease, particularly those with left ventricular systolic dysfunction or coronary artery disease. Um, interestingly, the administration of propafenone before electrical cardioversion does not alter the energy requirements for that or the success rate of cardioversion, so not great in that situation. Yeah, and um, another one that you'll see utilized, but does, is is kind of lost. Uh, it's fallen out of favorability, I would say, just based on some of the studies that have come out, and and it's even listed as uh, being a lower quality of evidence associated with its with its use in the the new updated guidelines. But sotalol, um, like we said, it's considered a class three drug, but it is still by definition a beta blocker. Um, it carries a box warning for um, risk of life-threatening ventricular arrhythmias. Obviously, the, the risk is going to be significantly decreased if the patient is started on sotalol in the hospital setting. Um, there is some renal dose adjustments to be aware of. And, you know, some things to kind of be looking for that would be listed as contraindications. You know, if a patient who has any type of, like, um, QT interval, especially long QT syndrome that's been, you know, that's recently acquired, that's shown up in their EKG, when we want to hold off on something like sodalol, uncontrolled heart failure, um, sinus bradycardia, um, would all be reasons why we would not want to start the sodalol at that point until that's under control. And then other more common adverse effects, bradycardia, chest pain, fatigue, dyspnea, hypotension, the typical beta blocker things we would think about. There was a study done um, called the SAFE-T trial, and uh, it was looking at amiodarone versus sotalol, and they saw that the, the, the patients both, regardless of which agent they had, um, were uh, equal in, in converting to normal sinus rhythm. However, amiodarone was superior as far as the maintenance of that normal sinus rhythm. So the patients, obviously, with sotalol were more likely to go back into AFib sooner. So uh, sotalol, and there's been some other studies as well, but sotalol, um, definitely an option, but it uh, there's some other antirhythmics that are considered more efficacious, although they may also have uh, more associated heart or um, side effects as well. Right. Um, then there's dronetarone. You'll see it branded as Moltac. Mike mentioned it before with not being used in permanent AFib. Um, it has a box warning for increased risk of death and stroke and heart failure patients and then permanent AFib as well, so not used there. Um, so not great. has other warnings, hepatic failure, lung disease, acute renal failure, hypokalemia, hypomagnesemia. Um, as Mike likes to say, the drug is, is trash, though... <laughs> 
you still see it some, um, but uh, it seems like there's other alternatives that could be that could be used in both the situation of um, uh, AFib or whatever it's going to be used for. Do you, do you see this drug used at all anymore? I have because there is I can't remember the specifics, but there's a there's a program with it um, where you have to have like an EKG every so often. I can't I don't want to say it's a REMS program, but there's something with it, and and somehow I ended up coming across it. And there were a few patients I saw who who had it. Yeah. Hmm. Um. But the uh, yeah, I I feel like I never saw it ever until I started my you know most recent chronic care management job. I've I've had probably four or five people that were either on it or have been started on it by cardiology since I started seeing the patient. And I feel like every one of them ends up feeling like garbage from being on it. Like it, it has yeah. really bad GI side effects, but I just, especially the ones that have like preserved ejection fraction heart failure, I've seen patients still getting put under Drenetarone because technically speaking, the increased risk of death, of death was with the reduced ejection fraction heart failure. But Still, like, I, I don't know that I would be jumping at that option when there's some others that we could look at first. Um, yeah. But I've seen patients that have preserved ejection fraction heart failure still getting put under Drenetarone, and they end up feeling terrible on it. So yeah, I, it does seem like does seem like there's I'm not really options. sure. Yeah, Though, like why? The, you know, there's patients who who run through all the you know options and and have to try something, but uh, you would think yeah. they they would be able to avoid that if, but you know. I guess Such a positive attitude, quick. Cole. That's what we love about you. I guess. I guess. You know, there are there are patients who are just going to need it. Like that is true. Right. In my <laughs> line of work, I do end up seeing those like the weird ones that have run through every other option. You know, and so yeah. they end no, up with this it. thing that it's like I don't know if I, this is ever going to be used. It's like well, you know, some there are, there's that there are those people who end up with it. You know what I mean? A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think that's I mean that's obviously a great point to even bring up about guidelines in general. They're just that they're a guide. <laughs> like they are by yeah. no means set in stone, patient specific parameters you need to follow. Hello. Right, right. All right, so uh, amiodarone, um, definitely a drug that I'm sure all of us are familiar with and considered to be one of the more potent or effective, I should say, uh, antiarrhythmics out there. However, it is associated with a whole bunch of potential risks, adverse effects that can happen, um, monitoring parameters, things like that. That it does carry a US, uh, U.S. boxed warning for the increased risk of pulmonary as well as hepatotoxicity. And I've I, that's the other thing I've seen since being in this job is I've seen two patients that had pulmonary fibrosis as a result of amiodarone use. Really? Um, so that was, yeah, so that was interesting. And then um, the other kind of unique thing about amiodarone is it can affect thyroid levels, but more commonly, it will cause hypothyroidism, but it can actually cause hyperthyroidism as well. So you have to kind of, you know, monitor the, the TSH, T4 levels and, and look because it can swing either way. Um, it can also lead to neurotoxicity. Um, it can cause optic, optic neuropathy, visual impairment. Um, and that's another thing that needs to be uh, monitored is, is um, your eyesight. I'll, I'll get to that in just a second. Uh, other adverse effects that are more common, hypotension, bradycardia, constipation. Some patients will develop a tremor and um, 
going back to the eyes, you know, the patients may end up developing these corneal micro deposits. Um, they can affect vision. So patients need to be um, aware also that the, the ha- maybe not in this terminology, but the half-life of the drug is 40 to 50 days. And so it may take a while to get out of their system if, you know, they do need to, to stop it for whatever reason. Um, if the patient has heart failure and needs an antiarrhythmic to help their AFib, then this is definitely going to be one of those options that, you know, is, is favorable in that situation. Um, it, you know, left ventricular hypertrophy ejection fraction less than 40, such that situation along with AFib, amiodarone is going to be one of your only, one of two options that you'll, you'll be able to go with in that scenario. If you right. do end up starting a patient on, on amiodarone though, like I said, TSH, T4 monitoring at baseline every three to six months, you probably want to get LFTs as well get a baseline EKG to check the QT interval um, or check for QT interval prolongation and then annually as well, looking for any kind of lung disease. So a um, CT chest, you know, getting a uh, um, chest X-ray, if there's like, you know, an unexplained cough and anything like that going after the the, uh, the therapy starts also would be warranted. And then um, if the patient does develop any type of like visual issues or anything, obviously making sure that they have a, a follow-up test to look for any kind of corneal microdeposits. But lots and lots of things to monitor for and kind of keep an eye on if you have a patient on amiodarone. So definitely not the easiest drug to to maintain a patient with. No, it's not. And I realize going on this next drug after amiodarone, I misspoke before about Moltac. Because what I was thinking of was was defedalide, defedalide, okay. yeah, that I'd seen a few times because um, it has U.S. box warning that requires it to be started and restarted in a setting with continuous ECG monitoring. Right, um, kind of very intensive in terms of getting started on a medication because you need a twelve lead ECG and continuous monitoring during a three day hospitalization to start it, um, and then monitoring electrolytes and um, creatinine clearance. And then at three to six month follow up, you need another ECG, and then effectively every three to six months after that, you have to have one too. Um, and it has contraindications like if you have an underlying prolonged QT interval, if you already have a low heart rate less than fifty, um, um, creatinine clearance less than twenty, um, and specifically a QT interval greater than four hundred and forty millo um, seconds, then it would be contraindicated. But it can have some adverse effects too tachycardia, dizziness, headache, that sort of thing. Yeah, and, and the other thing to keep in mind, too, is if a patient stops it for whatever reason, which I don't believe they have a set, like, time frame, but I've, I've run into a situation one time where the patient had stopped it for, like, a month and was like, okay, I'm ready to start it back up again because my symptoms are bad. Well, it's like, well, dude, we have to put you back in the hospital yeah. and restart it again. So the, I will say that this is the other option if a patient does have heart failure, you know, with reduced ejection fraction and AFib going on concomitantly, this is the other option if amiodarone is not going to work out. Defenilide would be the next option. And I've seen that as well, where a patient had that interstitial lung disease as a result of the amiodarone and also had heart failure. So the only other option was since They had to be hospitalized and, you know, go through the whole process. Right, right. So as you can but, see, um, there's multiple options with each, yeah. but the rhythm ones are definitely a little more associated with side effects, concerns, monitoring, that sort of thing. That that was why what we're about to talk about, which is comparing rate and rhythm, uh, it was a, it was the findings were a big deal. Um, so we've talked about this trial before. One of the, one of the first things we released um, 
so uh, a little uh, um, I don't know. I guess it was a Alexa like a rev- Flash uh, briefing. A review. Yeah, it was yeah. a review. I guess um, it was the Affirm trial, and it was looking at rate versus rhythm. With the rate strategy, they they were looking at a few drugs that we've talked about: beta blockers, diltiazem, verapamil, digoxin, or a combination of those. With the rhythm strategy, they looked at amiodarone, flecainide, propafenone, sotalol, or a combination of those with a primary outcome of five-year mortality. Um, and there was no difference, which was good because uh, prior to that, the rhythm control seemed to be um, seen as necessary, that you needed to convert back to a normal sinus rhythm for the best outcomes. But they showed that decreasing the rate was was um, as good. Um, there was a higher risk of hospitalization with the rhythm strategy and significantly more adverse effects with the rhythm strategy. I'll say that this most updated guideline highlights the importance of decreasing the AFib burden. Um, mm-hmm. So effectively, the um, how many symptoms the patients are having from it and how long the episodes are. Um, and so maybe the rate control can decrease the symptoms that they're having, which is good, but rhythm control would be sometimes necessary to convert them back. Um, so anyways, they, they highlight that more than in the previous guidelines of the importance of decreasing the, the AFib burden that a patient has. And and the guidelines do point, you know, to situations that would favor rhythm control, um, yep. over rate control. So patients, um, and they, there was actually a study that was looking at um, patients that had higher cardiovascular risk in general. That was called the East AFNET4 trial. And in that study, basically they showed that patients who were over the age of 75 um, and had a history of TIA or stroke uh, would benefit from rhythm control over uh rate control, and then also patients who were over the age of 65, but they also had to have two of the following, either um, heart failure, uh, female sex, hypertension, diabetes, CKD, CAD, or left ventricular hypertrophy. Um, two of any of those things would also warrant a uh, rhythm control over rate control. Then the other things they listed off were also um, failure with rate control, obviously, if the patient's still symptomatic. And then if the patients are symptomatic and they also have heart failure, they may benefit from rhythm control as well. And then also younger patients that would require um, more optimal cardio, you know, performance uh, just because of their age and maybe they're involved in sports or what have you. They may also benefit from rhythm control earlier on. Um, There's there's a really good uh, sort of, I guess, flow chart, if you will, um, that's in the new guidelines that kind of breaks this down. And it has on the left-hand column, it has favors rate control. And then you have the the variable in the center and then favors rhythm control on the right-hand side. So for example, they have um, patients who, you know, age and it, it, on the favors rate control has the older patients, favors rhythm control has the younger patients. Um, if a patient is, uh, has a higher symptom burden, it's favoring rhythm if lower symptom, not really bothering them on a day-to-day basis, favors rate control. And so it kind of just goes through like eight different examples of things you can kind of use to, to, to choose between those two options. And obviously having the patient, you know, a part of the decision is important too. It's something that the American Heart Association and all of them are very big on is shared decision-making. Right. Um, so the last part of this, now that we have controlled their rhythm, controlled their rate, and we're addressing their AFib symptoms, is to reduce their risk for stroke while simultaneously mo- uh, managing their risk for bleeding. Um, so the the primary and historically primary um, 
kind of tool or calculator that's been used is the CHADS VASC score, uh, which is effectively an acronym um, to assign different um, risk categories and give it a point value. Um, each um, of the categories is one point except for the age, um, as well as if you've had a prior stroke or TIA, that gives an additional point. Um, and with a score of two or more in men or three or more in women, they would uh, recommend anticoagulation. So um, C is for congestive heart failure. H is for hypertension over 140 over 90. A is age over 75. D is diabetes. S is stroke or TIA. V is vascular disease. Um, the other A is uh, age 65 to 74, so a little younger. And then SC is sex category or female. Um so they highlight that still is what has historically been used. They do point out that it isn't perfect and it doesn't account for everything. Um, so there are certain situations where you could consider other ones, and they're kind of saying that this is okay now. Um, one is called the um, Atria tool, uh, which just takes into account um, uh, some different factors. Some uh, They add the points a little bit differently as well as a Garfield score. Each of these have online calculators that you can access pretty easily um, if you felt like you needed to use that, um, mainly if you're just unsure of whether this patient is indicated. So if they have a score of one to two, um, then you might could consult one of these to see if some of these other factors or another way of looking at it could indicate them. There's also risk factors that the Chad's fast score doesn't take into account like higher AFib burden or longer duration, persistent and permanent AFib versus paroxysmal, doesn't take into account obesity, um, doesn't take into account creatinine clearance, that sort of thing. So it's not perfect, but it's it's served its purpose well uh, to this point. And if you do one of those evaluations and you find the patient is a candidate for anticoagulation therapy, then the question becomes, okay, what are we going to use in order to anticoagulate the patient. Well, the guidelines are very clear. They've been clear now for years, and they say that the ideal option for patients, unless they have a history of moderate to severe rheumatic mitral stenosis um, or if they have a mechanical heart valve, um, they should ideally, if those, if those situations don't apply, then the patient should ideally be on one of the DOACs, the um, direct-acting oral anticoagulants. And they they recommend that over what has been historically used, which is warfarin. Um, it's not to say that warfarin can't be used. It's just that uh, the docs have been seen, at least some of them have been seen to be at least as effective, if not better, and usually a little bit on a, a safe from a safety standpoint, a little bit safer, or at least no um, worse risk than warfarin. Plus, you don't have to worry so much about the monitoring with the INRs and all that stuff like you would with warfarin. So the docs definitely a lot more. Um, easy to keep patients on. The one thing I will say about the DOACs is you have to make sure the patient is adherent because we always think about it, at least when, when I used to think about this, I think adherence, I'm thinking more on the INR monitoring and all that. But warfarin is going to stay in the system longer. The patient will stay anticoagulated longer. And, and so if they do skip their monitoring, they're not in a very quick, like instant, instant risk for, you know, increased thrombus or having a stroke. And so the the scenario with like a DOAC is, yes, you get instant anticoagulation and the patient's good to go with, you know, as soon as they start taking their first dose. However, if the patient stops it abruptly, like I've seen a patient that ended up um, 
you know, being seen by the stroke team because they left their uh, Zeralto at home, came to Philly Beach for vacation for a couple of days, didn't think it would be a big deal, and ended up having a stroke on the beach. So it's something that adherence needs to be like you know, really harped on, you know, with the patient to make sure they understand the kind of the gravity of the situation, especially if they're, um, you know, higher risk, their Chad's vascular, the higher it goes, the higher the risk we'd be worried about. Right. So just want to, that's my, I'll get off my soapbox about that, but adherence, adherence, adherence for those DOACs. That was a good point. And for all, all other meds too, but especially the DOACs in this, in this scenario. Yeah. Not everything can result in such a severe consequence for not taking. Yeah. Um, so just briefly, you know, we're familiar with warfarin. It's an oldie, um, but a somewhat goodie. But it's a vitamin K antagonist and will increase bleed risk. Also has some strange adverse effects like possible skin necrosis and um, something called purple toe syndrome. But for most indications, the goal INR is going to be between two and three. Um, there's some um, high risk indications like uh, mechanical mitral valve or, or having two mechanical heart valves where it would be a little higher, 2.5 to 3.5. Um, and usually you would check the INR for the first time after the first two to three doses of warfarin. Um, and I mentioned the bleed risk, and there's uh, kind of a tool called the Has Bled score, which is going to evaluate um, an individual's risk for bleeding overall. It's going to assign point values for things like hypertension, um, abnormal renal function, stroke, bleeding, having labile INRs, um, and then if they're elderly and if they use drugs or alcohol. The um, guideline still says use this, but the guideline also says, like I kind of mentioned at the top, don't use it in a vacuum. Don't have it be the a, a specific reason why you don't anticoagulate somebody. Um, it's more to be a guide for how closely you should monitor or how you should counsel them or see if you can modify some of the risk factors. And it's going to give a score on a scale from zero to five. And um, if you look closely at it, you can see that as the score increases, it's kind of a logarithmic increase in the risk for a significant bleed. So um, it's 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 a reasonably good predictor. Yeah. And, and obviously, like we said earlier, the warfarin, um, which has been the historical go-to anticoagulant in this scenario, has been compared to all the, the DOACs at this point. And so we obviously don't have time to go through all these, but the the two most common DOACs you'll see in most of the, in most cases would be the Zeralto and Eliquis. Um, and so if you want to go look at the studies on your own, the, the Rocket AF trial was the Zeralto versus Warfarin showed basically that it reduced the stroke risk as well as Warfarin, and there wasn't a difference in adverse effects. So, you know, because of the lack of INR testing, you know, the lack of need for the DINR testing and all that, it's definitely more convenient. But the Pixaban versus Warfarin from the Aristotle trial um, appeared to show greater stroke reduction and lower bleed risk than Warfarin, which is why in some cases you see um, patients, you know, being put on Eliquis, you know, in, in to a greater extent than you see Zeralto or some of the other options. Uh, Pradaxa, you don't really see too often anymore. Um, it, it did have the, about the same effect um, as Warfarin. However, it did seem to increase the risk of an MI, um, which is a little unsettling and then uh indoxaban is one that i just feel like i've seen maybe two or three times in my whole career um it does seem to to you know work at least at, at least as well as warfarin maybe not maybe even a little slightly better um seems to have good side effect profile for the most part but a lot of insurance companies i feel like don't cover it and it's just one you don't see as often plus if the patient's creatinine clearance is above 95 you can't use indoxaban it's a vasa. so uh, that that one I'm not a huge fan of, but rivaroxaban, apixaban, those are my two go-to options uh, yep. for for the DOACs. 
And yeah, and the I patient, did this. Okay. Sorry, go I was going to say, if they can ideally, if they're a candidate for that Watchman device, that's the best care case scenario so they don't have to continue to take the anticoagulation. Is that different than an ablation? Yeah, the Watchman is the actual device that they put in the um, to block the left atrial appendage. So it's like a filter okay. that catches anything. The yeah, the, the ablation's the actual procedure to hopefully restore normal sinus rhythm. Yeah, I was going to mention, and I didn't want to, um, I didn't want to repeat what you said because I was going to say it's kind of out of our realm of expertise is the procedural stuff. But the the guideline does highlight the importance of considering the Watchman procedure for the patients who are indicated. And even in certain situations, um, ablation being considered like first line for certain patients. Um, so yeah, not, it's non-pharmacological, so you're not going to find us knowing, or at least me knowing a whole bunch about it, but it is definitely addressed in the guideline. Yeah, absolutely. All right, man. I think we're about out of time. Anything else with, for AFib? That's all I got. All right, y'all. Well, I thanks you to everyone listening. Make sure that if you are a free CE member, you go and get your one hour of continuing education credit for this episode. Um, and if you have, you know, not checked out the Patreon, you're wanting more, you know, traditional style lectures with PowerPoint slides and all that good stuff. Patreon.com slash core consult RX. Um, I have a lot of the lectures that I do for my, my PA students, all the different pharmacotherapy lectures and covers of vast array of different disease states lots and lots and lots of powerpoint slides and um if you sign up for a year um the annual fee which is like 30 dollars and some change um you'll also get a digital copy of high-powered medicine written by dr alex poppin that is um basically a summary of various landmark clinical trials and all of the different uh the Aristotle and Rocket AFL studies we just mentioned um, are included in that as well. So if you need summaries of all those at your fingertips, that's available to you. And then check out pearls.com uh, slash core consult RX. Um, pearls is uh, updating their app with all kinds of new stuff for the new year. Uh, they've already got the new algorithm for the diabetes 2024 guidelines and uh, their COPD 2024 guidelines have been updated. So um, check them out. It's a really good drug information app if you're not already uh, a member of that with them. And thank you guys so much for listening overall. Thank you to Free CE for continuing to partner with us. And Cole and I will see you guys around on the next episode. Have a good night.